0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 20 as we begin our concerted study of the Ten Commandments and how we see Christ in the Ten Commandments, how we can understand Christ better and understand the Ten Commandments better as we consider them in this way. We're going to read the first three verses of Exodus 20. Here's what it says. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Will you pray with me again this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you for the tablets of stone that came down from Mount Sinai containing your covenant, two copies of your covenant, both of which were placed before you because you were the one who would keep them. We praise you for that. We pray that this morning as we consider this first of the Ten Commandments that you would help us to understand how Christ has fulfilled it for us and how we fulfill it as we submit to the redemption that he has provided. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, from the time I was uh, old enough to run around and kick a ball, my parents had me playing soccer. I know people take one look at me and they say, you played football, right? And I say, no, I know I look like I played football, but I didn't, believe it or not. I played soccer all through my my childhood years and into high school, played soccer. And I remember very distinctly as probably a seven-year-old, eight-year-old kid trying out the position of goalkeeper, for the first time. And if you know, you know, you really don't even have to know anything about soccer to know that that goal, the goalkeeper, of course, is the one player on the field who can use his hands, right? And I was very excited about being able to use my hands on the soccer field. And I, I have a distinct memory at one point of picking up that soccer ball and running down the field with it like a football player or a rugby player until the referee blew the whistle and, and, and called, called the timeout and explained to me very gently as referees for eight- and nine-year-olds tend to do, that although I was the goalkeeper, I could only use my hands within the penalty box, and if I was outside the penalty box, I couldn't use my hands like like everybody else. But what I remember also about that game was feeling very disillusioned, feeling very upset, feeling like the rules had been changed on me, feeling like I thought that I understood how I was allowed to play and what was allowed to happen, and then finding out that, from my perspective, the rules had changed. I wasn't allowed to do what I thought I was going to be allowed to do. But of course, that wasn't actually what had happened, was it? What had actually happened was that I had misunderstood the rules from the beginning. I don't know if you can relate to that, relate to that situation where you think you understand the rules and then feel like when when you're finally given full understanding that the rules have been changed, but in reality, it's not that the rules have been changed, but rather that you had misunderstood them from the beginning. It's a pretty disorienting feeling, isn't it? Sometimes when we read the Gospels and read how Jesus speaks about the law, we have a similar experience. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes the law of Moses and he says, you have heard it said, and then he quotes part of the law, but I say to you, and then he explains something else It's a little bit different from their understanding of the law. And I have no, no doubt that the Jewish people in Paul's day, the, I mean, in, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and even we ourselves, as we read those stories, have that similar sense of disorientation, of thinking, you know, G- Jesus is changing the rules on us in the middle of the game. But the reality is, it's not so much that he's changing the rules as explaining that we never really understood them right to begin with. And that's what we're going to be seeing as we go forward through this whole series in the Ten Commandments, and in particular this morning as we look at this First Commandment, we're going to be seeing Jesus teaching us about the First Commandment and, and teaching us specifically that we fulfilled the First Commandment when, and only when, we have come to adore Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to his redemption. Keeping the First Commandment might on the surface appear as simple as not worshiping any other God besides the Lord. But as scripture goes forward and as we learn more about this Lord and how he reveals himself in the person of his son, Jesus, we learn this. That the only way to really keep the first commandment is to align ourselves with the son of God. We have fulfilled the first commandment when we have come to adore the Lord Christ and submit ourselves to his redemption. As we go through these these verses and consider this this morning I have four points for you they're printed on the back of your bulletin if you like to keep notes we're going to be talking about God's revelation of his authority his revelation of his identity and then we'll talk about God's final revelation of his authority and his final revelation of his identity in Christ and then we'll briefly discuss some implications of all of that all right his revelation of his authority and identity his final revelation of his authority and identity And the implications of that revelation. So first of all, consider God's revelation of his authority as we see it here in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, in order to understand how these verses show us God revealing his authority, you have to understand something about how covenants worked in the ancient Near East. And the person who taught us this most of all was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary named Meredith Klein. Meredith Klein was a, a professor. Well, um, I think you, you probably heard Bob talk about him in his time here, because Bob, I think you had the privilege of actually sitting under his, his teaching a little bit, right? Uh, by the time I was at Gordon-Conwell, uh, he was retired or professor emeritus or something like that, but his, his legacy was strong and his writings were popular. The reason that Meredith Klein, this professor, this, this theologian, is so important in, in biblical studies is because he pointed something out about the way the Old Testament is written, the way the Mosaic law is written, in comparison with other covenants in the ancient Near East. Meredith Klein pointed out that you can actually date a covenant by the form that the covenant takes. So you can look at a covenant that was, you know, found on on papyrus or tablets or things like that, and you can look at the form that it takes. You can look at the elements that it contains, and you can say this looks like other covenants from this era of history, And based on that, you could say this covenant must have been written in that era of history. And he pointed out that covenants, for example, written in the 15th century BC look very different from covenants that were written in the the 7th century BC or the 5th century BC. And so he looked at the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, and he said, you know what? This covenant looks a whole lot like the covenants that were written in the ancient Near East in the 15th century. It doesn't look anything like the covenants that were written in the 7th century or the 5th century, which is important because at that time, there was a big debate between conservative scholars and liberal scholars about the books, and there were people who were saying that the books that purport to be the books of Moses uh, and that were written in 1400 BC or, or somewhere around there were actually written maybe in the time of Josiah or in the time of the return from exile. They were written much later. And Meredith Klein said, no, that doesn't work. Because this looks like one of those older covenants. And liberals have hated him to this day for that reason. But the reason this is all important to us, the reason that I'm sharing all this with you, is because as we think about covenants and as we think about the way the Mosaic law is written, we can see a very specific form that it takes. And you need to realize that that's what God is doing as he gives the Ten Commandments and as he gives the law in general, he's making a covenant. There's a reason that we call it a covenant. The form that the covenant takes, in in, in simplified terms, is that it begins with the identification of the the king, the overlord, the suzerain, is the term that's used in in biblical theology and in covenant studies in in general. Suzerain is a word, I think it comes from French extraction originally, but it just means that overlord, the, the guy who's in charge, the emperor. Under him are his vassal kings, his tributary kings. So these covenants begin with the identification of the suzerain, and the overlord, the reason that the vassal kings or the vassal nations are to have loyalty to that king. And then it continues on with the, the expectations of the vassal nation, the vassal kings, the expectations, the stipulations of the covenant, the things that the overlord, the, the emperor, the the and king expects. And then it typically concludes with Promises of rewards for obedience to the covenant and promises of punishment for disobedience. Dr. Klein pointed out that's what covenants looked like in the 15th century in the ancient Near East. Does that sound familiar to you, that form? That's what we see here. That's what God's doing. He begins by identifying himself. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this covenant begins with God identifying himself. It continues on, as we're going to see as we go through the Ten Commandments, and and we're going to be returning to this and reminding you of this point as we go forward through the Pentateuch and consider the other parts of the Mosaic Law. Uh, It continues on in in the same covenant form. God gives the stipulations for the covenant. He gives his expectations of the vassal nation, in this case Israel. You see, God is the suzerain, the overlord, the emperor. Israel is his vassal nation, and the Mosaic law is the covenant. it, it is the stipulations, and it concludes you could you could fast forward through to exodus twenty three and other uh, other sections of of the Mosaic law to see promises of blessing for obedience, and promises of cursing for disobedience. It follows the exact pattern that you would expect of a covenant formulated in the 15th century in the ancient near east so it begins with god identifying himself and and by identifying himself in this way he is declaring himself to be the suzerain he is the king he is the authority i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery god in no uncertain terms here then identifies himself as the authority, the overlord, the king. This is his revelation of his authority. He, as the suzerain, initiates the covenant. He reminds them of his actions for them. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The implication is this is why you must be loyal to me. This is why we have this covenant. He's rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and Israel is to obey the conditions of the covenant as a result. This is God's revelation of his authority. But as he reveals his authority as the suzerain king, he's also revealing his identity. He describes himself by name as Yahweh. We know that when we come across the the name of God, the Lord, there in capital letters, as it is in English translations, that's our translator's way of cluing us into the fact that in the original language, this is an occurrence of the divine name. Right? We call it the Tetragrammaton in reference to the fact that it's four Hebrew letters. We generally pronounce it in English as Yahweh. Right? Whenever you see that, that's his name, his, his covenant name. And that's significant because prior to this experience with God and Israel in the wilderness, God seems to have only ever identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right. So you could go, for example, back to uh, Genesis 26, 24 to see his first interaction with Isaac. And there God identifies himself as the God of his father, Abraham. And you could see uh, God's first interaction with Jacob in Genesis 28, 13, where God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac. And even when God first interacts with Moses at the burning bush, when Moses first sees the burning bush and he approaches and is told to take the sandals off of his feet, God initially identifies himself in that same way. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's only as that conversation proceeds that God gives the further revelation of himself, and he describes himself by name as, I am who I am. When Moses says, how shall I describe you? Who, who shall I say sent me to the people of Israel? And God says, tell them, I am has sent me to you. We sometimes refer to this as the covenant name of God. This is, this is the name of God that he uses when he wants to emphasize his covenant relationship with his people. He is Yahweh. The fact that he identifies himself that way here, I am Yahweh, and then says your God, tells us that he is not just the God of their ancestors. He does not see himself at this point just as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he says, I am your God, Israel. I belong to you, and you belong to me. We are now in relationship with each other. We are now in covenant with one another. God is fulfilling his promise then to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to make his descendants part of this family. I will be a God to them. God reveals himself as the eternal one, the covenant keeping God. This, this name Yahweh tells us things about the Lord, doesn't it? That name, I Am, it speaks to us volumes about the nature of God, the character of God. It tells us about God's eternality. He is not the God who was, nor even is he the God who will be. He's just the God who is. He is the God who exists in the eternal present. All times are present to God. There is no past. There is no future. There is just being. There's just now. It speaks to us of his eternality. It speaks to us of his self-sufficiency. His being exists within himself. He owes his being to no one. Paul tells us that all of us as creatures, we live and move and have our being in him. But God has his being in no one other than himself. He just is. I am. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't rely on anyone or or anything else. This name speaks to us of his constancy. He never changes. With him there is no variation nor shifting shadow. There is no fluctuation with God. He just is. He is. Even when we speak about the Incarnation, the theologians who are the most careful as they speak about the incarnation, the, 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 the fact that God takes on human flesh when Jesus is conceived and then born into this world, they speak about it very carefully, and they have for thousands of years. The Athanasian Creed says that the incarnation happened not by the conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by the taking of the manhood into God. Which it's just a fancy way of saying that God doesn't change. Rather, in the Incarnation, God is absorbing, addending to himself that which had already existed within himself to begin with, namely, humanity. He is the I Am. So much we could say about this, right? In all of this, God is, is revealing simply these things, simply through his name. I am Yahweh your God. He reveals himself by name as the eternal one, the covenant-keeping God, and he reveals himself further by action as the redeemer. The reason, in terms of the covenant language, the reason that he gives for the loyalty of the vassal is that he brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is what I've done for you, Israel. In in ancient covenants, the the way this usually worked was that the the king would say, here's what I have done. I've rescued you from your enemies. I I came and and gave you deliverance when you were being attacked. Or or, you you were in the midst of famine and I brought food to you. Here's what I've done for you. And and in response to that, you're going to be loyal to me. Well, that's what God's doing here. Here's what I've done for you, Israel. I've rescued you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why? Why? Well, he's revealing something about himself, isn't he? He is the eternal one, but he is the redeemer as well. Now, he's much more than redeemer, and as we go through scripture, we see other aspects of the character of God. He is creator. He is sustainer, right? He is the giver of all good things. He is the father. He is the judge. He is the punisher of sin, But as he speaks to his people Israel, the the, the one thing that he focuses on is his redemption. I rescued you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who he is to Israel. He is the redeemer. This emphasizes for Israel what was most pertinent to them in that moment. And you see, we need to be careful here. We don't want to say that that this aspect of the nature of God is more important or more primary than any other. That would be a misunderstanding of the way God's attributes work. Each of God's attributes is each other of his attributes. No one attribute is more primary than any other attribute. He possesses all of his attributes in fullness and fully exhibits each one of them. And yet, when he speaks to Israel at this moment, he emphasizes this part. He says, I am the Redeemer. And I suspect that that is what is most pertinent for us at this moment in our lives, too. We need to remember this about God. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who rescues us. Ultimately, He is the one who rescues us out of slavery to sin. And we understand, and, and, and we've, we've had this impressed on us in many ways already, that the rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt is a symbol of the rescue of all of God's people out of slavery to sin. But he redeems us in smaller ways, too, doesn't he? He is our redeemer in all of the brokennesses of our lives. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who, as we sang just a little bit ago, takes us and turns us from being enemies to those who sit at his table. He is the redeeming God, the forgiving God. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God because. God is love. He is the redeeming God. He reveals his authority. He reveals his identity. He chooses to identify himself in these ways to Israel as the eternally faithful one who fulfills his covenant promises and redeems them. Now, why have I spent time talking about this whole covenant aspect? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, but, but really, the main reason that this morning I spent time talking about the fact that the Mosaic Law and the Ten Commandments are adhering to a previously existing form of covenants that existed in the ancient Near East, the reason that I'm bringing that up this morning is so that I can make this point. One other aspect of the way covenants worked in that world was that the suzerain kings, the overlords, would sometimes send representatives to the vassal nations under their authority. They would send representatives to remind the vassal nations, the vassal kings, of their responsibilities. Or at times when the vassal nations were were rebelling or in danger of going over into rebellion against their, their authorities, then those messengers, those representatives, would warn them, remind them of the things that the suzerain had threatened them with if they disobeyed. And as we go forward through redemptive history, we see those messengers too, don't we? In, in the studies of, of ancient covenants, they're sometimes referred to as covenant lawyers. Which is an unfortunate term, as far as I'm concerned. But in the Bible, they're just called prophets. right? But that's what their, their role was, right? Those prophets and that we read about all through Old Testament scriptures, we read them coming in there. They're the representatives of the king, the suzerain. They're coming at nation back to their responsibilities. They're reminding them of the terms of the covenant, reminding them of the blessings that were promised for obedience and the warnings about, of, of disobedience. They're telling them that the punishment would come if they continue to disobey. You see this all through the prophets, don't you? That's what the prophets were doing. And you see that all through the Old Testament until we come to Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ, we see a representative that is sent from the suzerain king, but who acts in a slightly different way, don't we? As Jesus comes, in some ways he looks a lot like those other covenant lawyers. In some ways he looks a lot like those other prophets. And we expect him to act like the other prophets act. We expect him to say the things that they say. We expect him to remind the vassal nation, to remind Israel about their covenant, to remind them about their responsibilities, to call them back to obedience and to warn them of the punishments for disobedience. And he does some of that. And he has the authority to do that. In fact, one of the things that Jesus insists on when he comes is that he has all of the authority of the suzerain. He hits that point over and over again. He demonstrates his authority doesn't he? He demonstrates that he has the authority of God and the power of God. He casts out demons and he raises the dead and he controls nature and he shows authority over the religion of Israel and over the religious life of Israel. He shows authority over the temple itself. He shows authority over the covenant. That's why he can say about the terms of the covenant, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The only person who has the authority to talk about what the covenant means is the one who made the covenant. Jesus is is implying for anyone who wishes to see it that he is the suzerain. He comes in the full authority of the king. And just in case those actions are not clear enough, he says it. He says it explicitly. He says over and over again the Son of Man has authority. On earth to forgive sins. In covenant language, what he's saying is the Son has the authority to forgive the breaking of the covenant. He's saying, I have authority to forgive those who transgress the terms of the covenant. Well, who has that authority except the, the king, the suzerain, the overlord, the emperor? Only, only him. In theological terms, he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and we say, who has authority to forgive sins except God alone? a point that the Pharisees make. And they're correct. Although they come to the wrong conclusions in regards to it. In John 5, 22, Jesus says, God has given all judgment to the Son. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And just in case we missed, it, missed the point, in, in 1 John, we read, No one who denies the Son has the Father, but on the contrary, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. All of which is simply going to this, this fact that Jesus has come not just in the authority of the suzerain king. He comes not just as a representative of the king. He is the king. He is the king. And even this, even this though, you know, once we wrap our minds around it, we're not terribly shocked. And we still expect him then to do something similar along the same lines as all of the other previous covenant representatives, covenant lawyers. We expect him as the suzerain, as the king, to now finally wreak the judgment that was promised for the breaking of the covenant. And if we had time this morning, we could go back into Exodus 23 and and later parts of the Mosaic Law and see all the things that God said would happen if the vassal nation Israel broke the covenant. He says, I will bring nations in to destroy you. I will cause drought and famine and sickness and pestilence. I will wipe you out. I will make life miserable. And now the suzerain has come, the king has come, and they've broken the covenant and judgment is coming. So, John the Baptist was expecting he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. But what does he do instead? Instead of wreaking judgment for the breaking of the covenant, which was his right, instead he takes the judgment onto himself. He, the suzerain, the king, the overlord, the emperor, he takes upon himself the penalty for the breaking of the covenant. That's what the crucifixion is about, isn't it? That's why Jesus endured that pain. That's why Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed. That's why he allowed himself to stand trial before people who had no authority over him. But he he submitted himself to that. He submitted himself to the physical tortures. He submitted himself to allowing his body to be nailed to the cross. He submitted himself to death. And as he died, he submitted himself to worse than that. He submitted himself to the final penalty for breaking the covenant. He submitted himself to separation from God. I don't know. I don't know the intricacies of how that worked. I don't know how Jesus, who is God, is separated from God. I don't know how the Son, who is, who is intimate with the Father, can be separated from the Father. All I know is that somehow the punishment for my sin, which is eternal separation from God, was poured out on the Son. He's the Redeemer. Jesus is then the ultimate expression of God's redemptive identity. He's not just the expression of God's authority. He's not just the expression of God's eternality, although he is that too. He takes that divine name to himself, doesn't he? Remember that exchange with the Pharisees in John 8? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Remember when the Pharisees said, you're not even 40 what are you talking about? Which is an absurd thing to say, because even if he was 100, he still wouldn't have mattered, right? Abraham had lived 2,000 years earlier. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the expression of God's eternality. He is, he is God. He, he takes the divine name to himself. He's the expression of God's eternality. He's the expression of God's identity. He's the expression of God's authority. And he is also the expression of God's love and redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer. He enacts the ultimate act of redemption. Forgiveness of the vassal for the guilt of breaking the covenant, therefore, comes not through the eradication of the covenant, nor the eradication of the punishment for breaking the covenant, but rather through the absorption of that punishment into himself. Understand, God, when he forgives you, is not just pretending like your sins never happened. That's not justice. Rather, he is taking the punishment himself. This is the final revelation of God's identity, the final revelation of God's authority. So, what are the implications of all that for us? What are the implications of all of this for us? Four implications that I want to lay before you this morning, and I'm going to leave it at that for today. Four implications of God's revelation of his authority and identity. When we think about this first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We have to understand, first of all, that worshiping God alone is not fulfilled unless we acknowledge and worship Jesus alone. As we consider these commandments, we understand through the lens of Christ that we have not fulfilled this commandment unless we worship God in Christ. We know that this is true because of what John says in 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, you are not fulfilling the first commandment if you reject the Son. We are only fulfilling the first commandment when we adore the Son. That's the first implication. Worshipping God alone is not fulfilled unless we acknowledge and worship Jesus, the Son. Implication number two. Worshipping God alone means that we trust in God alone. Not in anything else to save us. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. For ancient Israel, no doubt the most obvious Application of that was simply not to worship the gods of the Canaanites and the surrounding nations, not to create idols, as he's going to specify in the second commandment. But we are just as much in danger of worshiping other gods, aren't we? Whenever we trust something else other than God, whenever we put our faith in something other than Christ, whenever we find our joy, our satisfaction in something other than Christ, we are guilty of breaking the first commandment. We're having other gods. So worshiping God alone, worshiping Christ alone, means that we trust in him alone. We have no other hope. Our only hope in life and in death. So we belong to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. What do you trust this morning? Where is your hope this morning? Where is your satisfaction? What fills up your mind It's so easy to fill up our minds with money. Or maybe not with money. We're not so base as to think that much about money. We just instead think about security. Right? But it comes to the same thing, doesn't it? Or family. Or marriage. Or pleasure. What is it that you vest your joy and your satisfaction in? shall have no other gods before me. Worshiping God alone, worshiping Christ alone, means that we trust in him and find satisfaction in him alone. That's implication number two. Implication number three, worshiping God alone means that everything else in our lives takes a back seat to God. For the Israelites, it seemed to be enough to simply not worship the gods of the nations, but for us, the standard has been raised. We must love God more than anything else. Jesus says, in fact, in a hyperbolic sense, that unless anyone hates his mother and father and sisters and brothers and spouse and lands and everything else, you're not worthy of me. And we understand him to mean by that, not that we're actually supposed to hate in a positive sense, but rather that our love for God, our love for the kingdom of God, is to be so great that our delight in anything else should look like hatred by comparison. That's a high standard. This morning, we wrapped up our Sunday, Sunday school series in the book of Ephesians, and we saw at the end of Ephesians, Paul saying, grace to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, and we commented that that seems like a high standard, loving Jesus with an incorruptible love. And the same can be said here. Loving God so much, loving Jesus so much that everything else seems like hatred by comparison, that is not something that we're capable of. And yet, when the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart and works in us, He gives us that power. He creates in us that love. Worshipping God alone means that everything else in our lives takes a back seat to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Fourth implication this morning. Worshiping God alone means that we submit ourselves to the redemption of Jesus. That's what we've been saying. We have fulfilled the first commandment when, and only when, we have come to adore Jesus Christ and submit. Now, you might hear that phrase and say that seems like an odd way to word that, submitting yourself to to his redemption. Isn't redemption such a great thing that it's not so much something you submit to as it is something that you delight in and take joy in? So why would I say it that way? Submit yourself to his redemption. That makes it sound like something that you don't want and then you just have to kind of obey and submit yourself to. Yeah, I know. I did that on purpose because I think, and I want you to examine yourselves here. I think that deep down, humans don't naturally want redemption. Examine yourself and see if that isn't true. Left to yourself, apart from the revelation of the grace of God by the Holy Spirit of God, you don't want to be redeemed. You don't want to believe that you need redemption. You certainly don't want to think that you can't earn it. If you need salvation, if you need redemption, you're darn sure going to figure it out yourself. You're going to earn it. You're going to make God happy. You don't need someone else to get it for you, do you? Added to that, there is within this idea of redemption, the idea of expectation. That's true in the Old Covenant, and it's true in the New Covenant too. Having been redeemed, we are expected to live in the truth of that redemption. And we don't like that either. And so you take it all together, and I still conclude that left to themselves, humans don't want redemption. And so, I repeat, if we're going to worship God alone, that means, amongst other things, we must learn to submit ourselves to his redemption. That means submitting ourselves to the truth that we cannot earn our place before God. That we cannot make God happy through our own actions. That nothing we do is going to please God in ourselves That our sins are too great. We have offended against a holy and good God. Friends, it's not just that you've broken rules. It's that you've broken the heart of a good and wonderful God. And we deserve eternal damnation. And until we wrap our minds around that, we cannot understand the goodness of God in accepting the punishment for that on himself. Submit yourself to these truths. Submit yourself to the redemption that God has provided for you in Christ. Submit yourself to the implication that that has for you in not worshiping, not trusting, not loving anything else but God. You shall have no other gods before me. Beloved, you shall have no other gods before Christ. We've fulfilled the first commandment only when we have come to adore Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to his redemption. As we meditate on this this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is to ask yourself this question. Have you been guilty of breaking the first commandment? Have you in your life, maybe even recently, maybe this week, been guilty of putting other things before God, of worshiping other gods, other idols, other things. If so, then feel the weight. Feel the weight of breaking covenant. And then know that your punishment has been paid. The suzerain came and took it for you. Rejoice in your forgiveness and your salvation in him. Take a minute and think about those things in silence. Reflect on them. Pray prayers of confession. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. And then we'll conclude by singing together once more.